morning. About uh, five years ago, I was driving in my car, and uh, I guess everybody has their own positions as they're driving, and partly because of my laziness, I tend to rest my left elbow on the kind of windowsill as, you know, as I'm driving, or maybe I'm driving with my right hand, I don't know, I put it there, and I, I felt a little bit of discomfort right under my elbow, and uh, so I kind of looked at it, and I had a little lump right there under my elbow, I was thinking, well, you know, probably nothing, pulled a muscle, you know, something happened there, and kind of ignored it. Uh, but I, I noticed it didn't go away, it stayed there. And, uh, you know, I had to start thinking, well, maybe it's something I need to have the doctor look at. And I figured I'll start with my brother, Michael Long, and uh, I came to church to him. And I showed him this little lump I had here, and I said, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just a muscle that, you know, got tight or something. And he said, no, the only problem is you don't have any muscles in that part of your arm. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the doctor, and the doctor didn't know what it was. So the doctor sent me to have an ultrasound done of this lump. And uh, the ultrasound couldn't determine exactly what it was but it was, there was a possibility that it was a tumor. That's actually a picture of, a, I think, a CT scan uh, or MRI or one of those uh, stronger scans than just an ultrasound. And that showed for sure I had a tumor uh, underneath my elbow. And, uh, you know, it could be all kinds of tumors. You don't know whether it's malignant or not. The difference between a malignant and a non-malignant tumor, as I understand it, is a malignant will actually... Uh, able to go from one tissue to another. The, uh, if it's uh, non-malignant, it means it just stays where it is. It's not going to go beyond the tissue. It's, it's present at. But I, I didn't know, so they referred me to yet another doctor that did a biopsy on me, and that's when they know for sure exactly what it is. And it turned, turned out it was a schwannoma, which uh, I don't know what it means to you guys, but it, it means it's a cancer that develops in the sheath of the nerve cell, which, uh, praise the Lord, was not malignant. The doctor still recommended to have it taken out just to be on the safe side, so I had it removed. But uh, my life wasn't truly in jeopardy. Today, we want to think about sin, the problem that every human being has, and how it's uh, similar, in a sense, to, to cancer, my experience of it. Uh, the first first uh, way in which sin is similar is you can't see it at the surface. I look at you, and I, I don't see the sin that's in you. Right? Aren't you glad about that? But uh, you might see some side effects, right? Like I, I had some discomfort in my arm. That was a side effect of the tumor. And in a similar way, sin has side effects in our life. We do things that hurt God. We do things that hurt other people. We do things that hurt ourselves. Why? Because of sin, right? It's a manifestation of sin in our lives. Like uh, tumors, we often try to hide the seriousness of sin, right? In my case, I didn't want to think about it. You know, it's kind of scary. You don't want to think about your sin and how serious it is. But like cancer, and malignant cancer, sin is a problem because it's deadly, right? It, it will kill you. Well, in the case of sin, it separates you from God for all of eternity. And so sin is very, very serious. We want to think about that today. 
So our passage today is Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11, sorry, yeah, verse 11 through verse 16. You see, I misordered my notes. Hopefully my assistant will figure that one out. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. What is this rest that the author is talking about? We have to back up to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, where it says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. But because of sin and people recognizing sometimes that there's something in them that displeases God, they often try to do good works to make up for that sin. Well, I know I did something bad today. I shouldn't have done that. So I'll do something good to make up for it. I'll I'll walk an old lady across the street. And in God's balances, that will somehow balance. And uh, those are works. And as long as we have that mentality, we will never have rest. Because how much good works do you need to do to make up for your bad works? And how do you know that you are on the right side of the balance and not the negative side of the balance? Right? There's never rest if you have that mindset, that there's something that you must do to make yourself right with God. And the author here is saying, let us be diligent to enter that rest. That's not what God wants. He wants us to rest. He says, there remains therefore a day of rest for the people of God. God has made a place of rest for us where we don't have to worry about our sin, where we don't have to do another good work to try to make ourselves right with God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, just as God did from his. We often call call this salvation salvation. I don't have to worry about my sin anymore. God has saved me from my sins. That's the place of rest that the author wants us to enter. And then he reminds us again, and for the last time, of that failure of the nation of Israel, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. That was the example of Israel. We talked about it for the last couple of studies in Hebrews, and that was when the nation of Israel did not obey God to enter into the promised land. God saved them out of Egypt. He delivered them from bondage and slavery and from the threat of death under the Egyptians. He brought them through the wilderness. He fed them with manna. He provided for them clothes and shoes that didn't wear off. And he brought them all the way to the promised land. And he said, here it is. Go in, enjoy a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And they said, no, thank you. And they turned back to go to Egypt. Right? Why did they do that? 
We talked about it last time. There was a failure of faith. They didn't believe that God would really give it to them. Right? They, when they looked, they sent the spies, they looked, and they saw people that were taller than they were, perhaps more numerous than them, and in fortified cities, and they did the simple uh, military calculation, comparing their strength to that of their enemies, they saw that they were weaker. They did not have a chance to take that land. Now, we pointed out the failure was that they were looking at themselves and their power instead of looking at God and God's power, right? The same God who was able to defeat the empire of Egypt and to deliver them up was certainly big enough to defeat the nations that were in the promised land. But their eyes were on themselves instead of God. And, and there lies the grain of the problem that uh, I believe the author is after in the passage, that we tend to look at ourselves, right, instead of at God as the means to get into heaven. An example of that uh, I ran across when um, I invited Rick Bellis, most of you here know Rick Bellis, to go through the gospel with a young lady from the Axe House. I often refer to examples from the Axe House. I lived there for about 10 years, I think maybe eight years, just about broke the record. And uh, we had a little Bible study there and had opportunities to, to tell people about the Lord. And Xanta was a young lady who attended the Bible study. And I couldn't quite tell where she was spiritually. She claimed she was a Christian, but there were some things that made me wonder. And uh, Rick Bellis was working with me as I was leading this Bible study and was asking me who came and where they were spiritually. And when I mentioned Xanta, I think he offered to meet with her. He said, well, See if she wants to, to meet with me, and we'll go over the gospel together. And uh, she was willing to, so Rick came and visited, and Rick talked to her to a little bit. And then he said, he asked Santa something along the line, how much, for you to get to heaven, how much do you need to do? And how much does God need to do? Is it, uh, you know, 80% God, 20% you? 90% God, 10% you. And I forget exactly what she said, but it was something like, yeah, God has to do 90% of the work, and I have to do 10% of the work. And uh, I think Rick tried to help us see, really, her own inability to do that. You can't even do 10%, right? We'd like to. This is part of the problem. The reason so many people find it difficult to enter heaven is because of our pride. There's something about something good in me that I can do to, to help myself make it into heaven. So it's kind of, I think, what the, the problem of the children of Israel, you know, God was able to get us out of Egypt. He's able to, you know, help us survive in the wilderness. But there's something that's left for us to do. When it comes to the land, that's when we have to, by our own strength, take the land, right? In a similar way, we think, well, Jesus did a lot for me, but there still remains something I have to do with my own strength to get to heaven. Right? You know, God left something for me to do, and it's a preserver of my pride, right? There's something I did to make myself go to heaven, right? I mean, that's what people want. They don't want to let go of the pride. They don't want to admit that there's nothing good in me, right? There's something good in me. There's got to be something for me to do to get into heaven, right? We can't quite let go and let God. There has to be something about us in there. And that's what I believe the author wants to show us when he next turns us to the word of God, in verse 12 he says, 
For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when I had my, my, seat, my, uh, my lamp, we needed different, I needed different kind of, of medical instruments to show what the problem was. Right? I remember there was first the ultrasound and then the CT scan and, and then the biopsy. You know, it's like one thing can't do it all. And uh, you know, how does the word of God compare? We need to, to really show us what we are like. We need the word of God, right? It's not, you know, I can't put myself under an ultrasound or even a CT scan and expect it to show my sin problem. It won't, right? I need the word of God to do that. And uh, the author is pointing out to some of the qualifications of the word of God to serve as that tool to reveal a sinful state. The first one, and I'm kind of lumping them a little bit together because there's a lot here. I said it's living and powerful. It's living and powerful. Uh, Medical instruments are limited, right? They were designed for a particular function. You know, an ultrasound can only take an ultrasound, right? You can't use it to also do a CT scan. You can't use it to do a biopsy. It doesn't work for those functions, right? It can't, it can't do everything. The Word of God is living. It speaks of the fact that it really speaks to people in all conditions. You know, it can, it can show me my sin. It can show, show Sam uh, Wilson, his sin, it can show Noah Rice, his sin. We all have different sins, we all come from different backgrounds, and yet the Word of God can really penetrate and show each of us our sin. Uh, a good example of that is uh, C.T. Studd, he's one of the, of the better known uh, missionaries over the years. And uh, C.T. Studd was raised in what I would call Polish English society, he was near the top. His father was, I don't know if he was a millionaire in those days, certainly would be considered millionaires in today's standards. You know, City Startup had everything, went to the best schools. God gifted him with an athletic body. He became uh, perhaps one of the greatest cricketers of his time. And yet, in the midst of that Polish society, God was able to use his word, the Bible, to show City Stud his sin. And then City Stud was uh, walking. Uh, along one day, and uh, he noticed there was a sign on a, on a storefront that uh, said, cannibals want missionaries. And, uh, you know, you could, you could read it in more than one way. The city stud was curious enough as a result of reading it that he went into the, uh, the store. It was a, a meeting place. They had a small meeting, and there was a missionary there talking about the needs of cannibals. For a missionary, right? Cannibals need missionaries to tell them about God. And so City Stud felt cold, and he went against the advice of many right into what we might call the heart of Africa, the place that has seen you know, the least white people. At least uh, I, I believe that white people who went to that, that part of Africa had an expected lifespan of three years. Uh, and... Uh, and he found, you know, he had to keep going deeper and deeper until he ran into cannibals. And, uh, you know, he worked in their midst. And you know what he used with them, to work with them? He used the Bible. 
right? The word of God. The same word that convicted city stud in a Polish British society was effective to convict cannibals of their sin, right? Not necessarily just that of cannibalism. We usually think of that as the worst offense. You know, it was one of the many sins that existed in that society. And yet the same word of God that could convict a Polish British gentleman was effective in convicting cannibals in the heart of Africa and bring repentance in their hearts. And that is, that is why we want to seek the word of God. It's living and powerful, right? To accomplish exactly that which God purposed it to, which to convict people of their sin, to show them what they're really like. Next, it says that uh, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is sharp. It penetrates. And uh, we, we are afraid of sharp objects in my house. And we don't want to see our kids playing with sharp objects because of how easily they can penetrate and cause, inflict damage. But uh, if, if you're going to go under surgery and someone is going to be using you know, a tool to go in and get that uh, tumor, you want it to be sharp, right? Because you don't want it to unnecessarily damage the surrounding tissue. You want it to go in as easily as possible and reach within and be able to take it out. And uh, that's the good thing of the Word of God is it penetrates through, right? And uh, it, it brings out uh, the, the thoughts and intents of the hearts. Uh, it helps us show how much sin is a part of us. We often think of uh, gross things like uh, cannibalism or murder or adultery, perhaps, as sin. We don't recognize that it really starts in the heart. Right? It's hate. Right? That's the root of murder. It's lust that is the root of adultery. And what it shows me is sin is part of me. Right? I mean, here, here comes the problem. You know, if it was only murder that was sin, maybe I cannot murder anybody and I'll go to heaven. You know, I could maybe achieve that. If hate is sin, I'm in trouble. Right? How am I going to get hate out of my... How, can, I, can I go through the rest of my life without hate? Without lust? Right? I can't. Right? That is, that is how desperate my situation is. That is why I need someone to save me. Right? That's why it has to be all of God and none of me, because of the truth about the state of my heart. Okay, and that's the purpose of the Word of God. It says in Galatians 3.22, but Scripture has confined all under sin. Scripture shows us all that we are sinners, and we cannot escape from that under ourselves. Right? I cannot break the chains of sin. Right? I need a Savior. Now, it, uh, it adds here what I call the piercing gaze of God in verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I may ask the question, well, if the Bible is going to tell me all these bad things about myself, why do I want to read the Bible? Right? It's just going to make me, you know, miserable. And there's a number of answers to that. The first of all, you know, again, if I have this, you know, lump in, in my arm, why do I want to go to the doctor? It's going to tell me I have cancer. It's going to make me sad. You know, I better just, you know, pretend it's not there. 
right? And some people sadly do that, right? It doesn't make it go away, right? That's what it means. There is no creature hidden from his sight. God can see it. Even if I cannot see my sin problem because I don't go to church, I don't open my Bible, I don't let anybody tell me about, about God, it doesn't change the reality about myself. We live in a world full of sinners. Like it or not, every person you meet is a sinner. Right? They all have the same problem. And God can see it, so just us refusing to see it ourselves doesn't help the problem. Right? Uh, second, uh, we're accountable to God. Right? That's what it says. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We don't often think of, of needing to give account, uh, but uh, we have to give account pretty much for everything we do. Uh, we have uh, had this illustration with the credit card. I you know, can take this uh, you know, nice card over here, <laughs> and I can go to the store and buy just about anything I want until I hit my credit limit, which I think is something like $10,000. But you know what? At the end of the month, I'm going to get a bill. Right? And it's going to say, OK, you owe us $10,000. And uh, I can try to ignore the problem, and it'll actually just get bigger, right? If you refuse to pay your bill, what happens? Well, penalties and interest, right? And they'll come, you know, eventually come after me or deny me credit. Or, I mean, there's an account to pay for my purchase decision. I have to pay for it at the end. Uh, similarly, at uh, work and uh, in my job, uh, I, I'm a... I'm, I'm a salaried person, I'm not an hourly person. I don't uh, accomplish enough in an hour for anybody to be willing to pay me for it. Uh, my brother Jake here, you know, his boss can look at how many parts he produced during his shift, right? maybe an hour, and he can tell, you know, Jake is worthy of what I'm paying him, because look at what he just produced. In my case, it's very difficult to tell what I produced. <laughs> right? if, if, you know, in an hour for sure, uh, in you know, a day, I might potentially at the end of the day produce a report. I'm, my job is to produce reports. Right? I look at data, I analyze the data, and I come to some sort of a conclusion and I write a report and I email it out. Right? And that's basically what I do in my job. Uh, but I may not produce a report every day. I may not have received enough data, I may not have finished my analysis. <clears throat> Maybe I wasn't very diligent in my work. Uh, and the way that that comes to an end is at the end of the year. We have something called a review. <clears throat> and my boss will talk to all the different people that I was supposed to issue a report to and say, did Noad issue you the report you needed? And did you get it in a timely manner? And did it, did it, did it, uh, did it answer the question that needed to be answered? Did Noad do a good job? So even there, I will have to give an account. You know, we paid you, Noad, so many dollars for the year to produce good work. Show us the work. What did you do with the money right, that we paid you? In a similar way, we will have to give an account for God. Our life comes from God. Our time, our minutes, our seconds all come from God. What did we do with it? At the end of it, do we offer to God our life? Will he be pleased? Will he be satisfied? Right? That's the question. We have to give an account to God of our lives. Now, there's one more reason of why not to ignore what the Word of God says about us. And... That is the fact, the good news of the gospel is that, is that sin is treatable, right? If, if, if cancer was untreatable, if I knew 
As soon as I had cancer, my death was guaranteed. There was nothing the doctors could do, which was maybe true a couple hundred years ago. Maybe there is no reason to find out. What's the point? Finding out my life will be cut short if there's nothing the doctor can do about it. Why should the doctor even tell me about it? He's just going to make me more, more, you know, feel worse. But doctors have developed treatments for cancer. They might be able to take it out. They might be able to, to give you a, a drug that will kill the cancer. So that's why we, we go to the doctor, because they can do something about it. In a similar way, the value of letting the Word of God expose your sin is that God has a solution for our sin problem. Praise God. Okay, and that's why we want to find out we have the problem, and then we want to bring the problem to the one person who can do something about it. And that is God. And so we have for us God's solution in verse 14 through verse 16. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest, and uh, God's solution is through a person, right? He's not giving you medication. He's not going to give you surgery. He's giving you a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus. And that person is described as a priest. And uh, the book of Hebrews is really exceptional in bringing out the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. We, we actually already saw the word priest happening in chapter 2, and then it's like the author took a little, you know, devious side to talk about this example of the nation of Israel failing, and now he's getting back to the point of the book of Hebrews, which is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest. And we're going to see that theme dominates for the next five chapters or so. Okay, so a lot more about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. But... Uh, a priest is someone who, who, who mediates between God and man. So the nation of Israel had a problem. They were sinners, right? So God gave them priests. And the job of the priest was really to, to be the one who represents the people to God and represents God to the people. How can a, a holy God have a relationship with a sinful nation like the nation of Israel? The answer is a priest. There needs to be a man, right, who mediates between the two of them. That's the job of a priest. Now, the Lord Jesus here is called the great high priest. So in the nation of Israel could have had a number of priests, but only one high priest at a time, only one living high priest at a time. He was the one who really got to go into the holy of holies. He's the one who got to go closest to God of all the people. Just, you know, we'll get into that just once a year, not without blood, but there was one person. But Jesus is the great high priest, which means he's the one who really is the ultimate priest that God had in mind all along. He is the one who stands between every man and God, providing for every man that solution to our sin problem. Right? He is the great high priest. And the author is, is pointing some of the special qualifications of the Lord Jesus to mediate between us and God, to solve our sin problem. And the first one here is it says that he has passed through the heavens. So the other high priests uh, lived... And they may have done, you know, a better or worse job as far as being high priests and, and mediating for the nation of Israel. And then at the end of that, they died. So that's fine. We'll elect another high priest, right? And you know what happened? He died too, right? And all of them, their high priesthood only lasted so long because they died. In the case of the Lord Jesus, he didn't just die. He then rose from the dead. He didn't just rise from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he is now sitting on the right hand of God. You know what that means? He can still function as a high priest, 
right? I can look to him today just as much as people could have looked to him 2,000 years ago to mediate between them and God. Jesus is still available. In fact, he's in a, a better position now to mediate between us and God than he was before. Then he was on earth. Now he's in heaven, right next to God. Who else would you like to be on your side, right, and mediate between you and God, but the one who is on God's right hand, right? Second, we're told here that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean that he is God. He was God the Son before he came to earth. And so he comes to earth and he's now our mediator with God, but he doesn't lose that connection with God. He's always the Son of God. That never changes. And now if you're going to have someone who acts as a mediator between you and God, who better than God's Son? Who, who better to have God's ear? Who better to have God on his side and to accept? Who, who better will God accept than his own Son? Right? So we have, we have an in with God if we have an in with Jesus. Right? Third, it says here, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here it speaks about the humanity of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus became a man. Now that's really important. If, 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 I, if there's somebody who will mediate between God and myself, it needs to be someone who can understand me, right? If Jesus just was just God, you know, I would be hesitant to approach him. But he became a man, right? And as a man, it says he experienced the same difficulties as I do. You know what that means? He understands me. I, I don't have any problem in my life that Jesus doesn't understand, right? So as I approach him and I say, Jesus, you know, I want you to understand this and this as I'm, as I'm, as I'm seeking to, to have you speak to God on my account. And Jesus can say, yes, I understand. Yes, I understand. We... Uh, like to look at the, at the Lord Jesus encounters with people we did over the last uh, a year or so in our Sunday school, and you always see Jesus' compassion, right? We talked about it today. The Pharisees invited Jesus to his house. He said, okay, I'll come, right? A, a, a sinful woman that everybody knew was a sinner was behind him, you know, touching him. You know, Jesus received her with favor, right? The, the lepers came to him, and Jesus touched them. Right? He ate and sat with tax collectors and sinners. Right? There was no one who Jesus wasn't willing to receive and touch and heal and feel. We have a, we have a compassionate high priest. Right? And he wants us to come to him. He understands us and all our difficulties. Right? Who, who better to then mediate between me and God but the one who can receive me with open arms and the one whom God will receive with open arms. Right, and then the final statement we have qualifying him, yet without sin. So we pointed out Jesus had the same trials that I had, and uh, every trial that I had, you know, results in sin. <laughs> in some way or another, it comes out of me. And yet, in the case of Jesus, there was no sin, right? Sin never came out. He never sinned, right? God could look down at him and say, this is my well-beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. Right. And Jesus can say, I always do those things that please the Father. And uh, I think that qualifies Jesus on a couple of ways. First of all, for us, you know, if, if somebody offered to help me with my sin problem, and he had a sin problem of their own, <laughs> I would wonder, can you really help me? But you look at the Lord Jesus and there's no sin. 
here's somebody who can really help me. And then we'll get into it later. I think, I think just about everybody here understands this. But God needed something in order to absolve us of our sin. He needed a sacrifice that could pay the penalty that we deserve. And that sacrifice had to be perfect. God couldn't take a sacrifice with sin in it and use it as the payment for our sins. And the Lord Jesus isn't just <clears throat> the high priest. We will see he is also the sacrifice that the high priest offers to please God. And that sacrifice had to be perfect. And so the perfection of the Lord Jesus guarantees God's satisfaction in the payment Jesus was making for our sins. Okay. <clears throat> so we see our problem is sin. We have the word of God that reveals our sin. And now we have God, the word of God, revealing God's solution for our sin. And that is the Lord Jesus as our mediator. And the final thought is, well, what should we do about it? What should we do about it? And he tells us in verse 16, actually, he introduced the thought in verse 14. He says, let us hold fast our confession. What is our confession? Well, it's our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose from, from the dead and that by putting my faith in him, he will take me to heaven. Right? That's our confession of faith. And it says, hold fast to that confession. Uh, we uh, have an evangelism class on Monday. I think, I think quite a few of us attended it. And uh, they taught us uh, a, uh, a tool for remembering the gospel. And the tool is your hand. <clears throat> so this will be a refresher for those taking the class. Maybe you can help me with it. And uh, the first one is the thumb. Anybody remember what the thumb is? Grace or heaven, right? So heaven is a free gift, right? You know, like, like a hitchhiker. You know, I, I want to go to heaven. And you know what? I can't afford to pay for the ride, right? Heaven is a free gift, right? And then uh, the second one was this figure. Man is a sinner, right? Man is a sinner. So I point at you and I tell you you're a sinner. And at the same time, I have three fingers pointing at me because I'm a bigger sinner than you are. So that's okay, right? So we understand we have a sin problem. And then the third one, what's the third one? God, right? And, and we learned that God is, uh, is merciful. And we said here, he doesn't actually want to punish us for our sins, right? That God doesn't want us to go to hell, right? He wants us to go to heaven, right? That means he's merciful. But he's also just. And because he's just, our sins must be paid for, right? He, 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 is, he, is, he has to be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus, right? He cannot just ignore our sins, right? And that's why we have the provision of the Lord Jesus for us. And then the third one, actually, fourth one, sorry, kind of gave it away, is Christ Jesus, right? And, and the reminder is that's the ring finger, and Jesus is our heavenly groom, right? So we can kind of remember that. And uh, it said that Jesus is both God and man, which is so why uh, that's important. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead uh, to purchase us a place in heaven, if I remember correctly. All right, and then the last one, what that is? Faith, right? The smallest finger because our faith is so small. <laughs> but uh, so here the, uh, the author is telling the, uh, the Hebrews, let us hold fast our confession. You see, they were kind of wavering in their faith. 
And uh, if I remember correctly, what, what the book reminds us about faith is uh, faith is not head knowledge, neither is it temporary faith. True saving faith is trusting Jesus for eternal life. And uh, the risk in the case of the Hebrews is maybe some of them just had head knowledge. Right? Oh yeah, all these things sound fine. But in their hearts of hearts, they haven't trusted Jesus. And the reason they haven't trusted Jesus is probably because they're trusting in something else. Right? Just like the nation of Israel, somehow they thought they could conquer the land themselves. They reserved a place for their pride. And in a similar way, people may, may receive this head knowledge, but because they're to some extent trusting in themselves, they haven't really leaned completely upon Jesus for their salvation, right? So that's head knowledge. Uh, the other is temporary faith. And, uh, you know, somebody says they prayed a prayer, right? You know, maybe they kind of trusted in, in Jesus in that moment, but there was something wrong. It didn't quite penetrate, right? Saving faith is trusting in Jesus Christ for eternal life. It's leaning fully, trusting fully, leaning. It's all of God and none of me. Right? That's what's going to get me to heaven. That's trusting in Jesus. Don't, 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 don't find something else in your heart to lean on, some good in yourself. I need him as my savior. Right? Jesus plus nothing equals heaven. Right? That's saving faith. Okay, and then we're given this picture, and I don't think this is really very different, or at least in our application today, we will look at it as the same. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And uh, I'd like to think that of that as a picture of, of putting our faith in the Lord Jesus for salvation. Why is it a throne? First of all, it's a throne when we come to Jesus by faith because Jesus has authority. Right? That's what we think of as a throne. A throne is a, is a place from which authority flows. The king has power, right? And he can make decrees. And Jesus has authority. We see it in uh, John 17. And this is right before the cross. Literally, Jesus is now walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh. Who has authority? Jesus. Authority for what? That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus has the authority to give you that free gift of heaven. Right? Are you a hitchhiker? Are you looking for a place? Want to go to heaven? Find Jesus. Right? He is the one on the throne. He is the one whom God has given authority to dispense eternal life. Second, it is a throne of grace. Right? And the word grace we often define as unmerited favor which means we need to define what unmerited means because most of us don't use that word. It's something we don't deserve, right? The truth is that God loves us and he wants to give us eternal life. And that is why he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, right? That's what we say. For God so loved the world, 
He sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is God's desire to give eternal life to every man and woman and child and old person and anything you can think of on the face of the earth. Right? That is God's desire. That is his heart. And that is what the throne of grace is for. It's there. It's available. Come to me and I will dispense with this grace of, of salvation. Right? God paid for it. It cost you nothing. Just come and receive it. Right? That's what God wants us to do. The throne of grace. God dispensing with his favor. And the third thing we see here is we're told to come boldly, to come boldly to the throne of grace. And uh, we ask why, why should we come boldly to the throne of grace? Well, first of all, because he tells us to, right? Does not the scripture says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace? Who is saying it? Ultimately, it's God. God wants you to come to the throne of grace and receive eternal life, right? That is God's desire for you. He, he tells you to, so you can do it. You can come boldly. Second of all, why should we come boldly? Well, because we need it. Um, I'll make this my last illustration for the day. But I don't know how many of you shop for Christmas. Usually there's, a, there's something called Black Friday. Anybody here heard of it? <laughs> that comes before Christmas. And uh, stores will use that day, so that's, you know, it's, it's part of American culture, right? We wait till Thanksgiving to, before we buy gifts for Christmas. And uh, it's very important for stores, the reason it's called Black Friday is most retail stores are in the red until that day, and that's the day that puts them in the black, meaning they actually became profitable for the year on that day, right? So it's very important for them that you come and shop. And as a result, they, uh, they come up with these different incentives. I have a picture here. One store, the incentive they came up with was, uh, you know, for the first, I don't know, 100 people or 500 people, whatever it was, you know, we'll give you this free scratch card. And you scratch it, and there'll be an amount on it up to $100 to spend at our store, right? And, you know, these people are coming boldly right, to kind of a throne of grace, right, because somebody is giving something for nothing, and, uh, and they come. And, and I was trying to think, what is it that makes these people come boldly to, to this offer? And uh, there's three things. You could probably think of more, but at least three things. One is they think they need it, right? I mean, let's say you're Bill Gates, and you have $40 billion. You don't really need a scratch card, right, of up to $100, I mean, that's definitely not going to pay for, you, for your bill for, you know, for the hour you're standing there. So you have to think you really want it. Uh, second, you have to believe they'll really give it to you. I mean, what if you showed up and they said, ha ha, you know, it's just a trick to get you in our store. If you thought that was the case, you wouldn't come, right? So you believe that their promise was good. Right? Now, you don't know what's on the card. It could be that most cards have like a dollar on them. I don't really know. But uh, you believe that they're really giving you free money, though, so you come. And third, uh, you believe that it's a limited time opportunity, right? And I don't know what they advertise. You have to come between 6 and 7 a.m., or you have to be one of the first 100, or even if you just need to be there that day. You have, you have a limited time opportunity. 
And that's what causes this press of people to want to go in. So we want to think about the throne of the Lord Jesus, where he wants to dispense of his grace of eternal salvation. And uh, how, how does that compare? First of all, do you really need it? Do you really need eternal life? Is that really important? And that's one of the, the values of the Word of God, this diagnosis. Diag- diagnosis? Diagnosis? <laughs> You know, of our state. We are sinners, and we're going to have to give account to God of our lives. Here is someone who's offering eternal life in heaven. I would say that's more important than a card that might be somewhere between zero and a hundred dollars. You know, will he really give it to you? Will Jesus really give you eternal life if you come to him? Well, You know, why did God send Jesus into the world? It wasn't for Jesus' health, right? Why did Jesus go on a cross and die? He didn't want to. He prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Why did God raise Jesus from the dead after Jesus died? I mean, all of these things point us to the one thing. Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. Why? So that he could give you eternal life. He is good. His offer is good. Finally, is there a limited time opportunity? The Bible says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I cannot promise you tomorrow. The word of God promises you today. Why don't you come? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, our great high priest. Lord, how well we recognize that we cannot earn a square centimeter in heaven. And yet there is one who offers us a mansion up there here to be with you for all of eternity. Lord, we pray if there's anybody uh, here or anybody who listens to this message who have not yet come to that throne of grace to receive eternal life, that you might draw them to yourself and even today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.